According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me, if you would, in Philippians chapter 2. The book of Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Get our first look at the new chapter. Although I teased it a little bit a week ago. We're going to build on that and uh, move on. I have made a slight adjustment to how we're outlining the chapter, so uh, we'll reflect that here uh, as we get started. But before we do any of that, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking the Father to set aside our distractions, to humble us, to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thankful for your grace and truth. We're thankful for the blessing that we have to assemble together. We thank you, Father, for your faithfulness, that it's the faithfulness of the Holy Spirit and his teaching ministry that leads us into the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. I thank you that the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. So, Father, this morning we're once again in your hands. Bless our time of study. Teach us and feed us, Father. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. So um, crossing over now from chapter 1 into chapter 2, you remember as chapter 1 ended, it ended with conflict and yet no fear. And uh, that uh, Paul was urging his readers to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, starting in verse 27, and that uh, they're not going to be alarmed in any way, and not even one way alarmed, it says in verse 28. In not even one way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And so this is the, the context, that the scope of how chapter 1 comes to an end. And that's what feeds across now into chapter 2. Chapter 2 starts with good things, uh, the, the consolation and the comfort and the encouragement and the affection and compassion and all the neat stuff that we want to have. Uh, but let's not lose sight of the fact that it starts with a therefore and it's presenting all of those good things in the context of suffering, in the context of conflict and enduring the conflict and, and uh, the blessings there. And so as chapter 2 begins, it begins with a therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, even a tiny little bit, if there is any at all encouragement in Christ, if there is any, even a little bit, consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any affection and compassion, all right. And so obviously the answer is yes, <laughs> there is. There's a lot. All right. There's a lot of fellowship. There's a lot of compassion. There's a lot of, all of these things are in abundance on an infinite level to a limitless degree coming from our Father. And yet the expression is if there is any, if there is even the tiniest amount, if there is any, um, then make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And so those are the two verses that we're going to handle as a unit. Uh, I believe when I gave you the tease, the preview last Sunday, I said we were going to handle one through four as a unit, and then five through 11. Well, I've changed that. I've decided to put three and four uh, in the next paragraph uh, with five. So we're just going to handle one and two uh, separately, and then we're going to get to three, four, and following. And basically, three through 11 
will be the next section. So let me put this on the screen and give you the, the outline for the chapter. Starting in verses 1 and 2, uh, chapter 2 features three exhortations and some travel arrangements. Three exhortations and some travel arrangements for Paul's envoys. These exhortations are follow-ups to the closing exhortation of chapter 1. All right, And so we start with, make my joy complete. That's uh, the first of the three exhortations. Make my joy complete. The conclusion to this leads right to the second exhortation, have this attitude or think this way. Okay, We're going to have uh, probably adapt, um, I don't know what we'll adapt. There's a song, but I just decided that I don't want to mention that in the pulpit. There's a, we'll have a, a, we'll have a, a message called Think This Way. Like we're going to have a message called Make My Joy Complete, right? I'll even say it in a dirty, hairy voice, like uh, Make My Day. It's going to be Make My Joy Complete. And that's what uh, verses 1 and 2 are all about. The second one is Think This Way or Have This Attitude. Have the attitude Christ had. Have the attitude, and it's the attitude of humility. And we're going to see that regarding the other is more important than ourselves. The third exhortation is work out your salvation. To work out your own salvation with fear and trembling is what we're told. And this takes us from verses 12 through 18. And so those are the three exhortations in the first half of chapter 2. As I said, chapter 2 features three exhortations and some travel arrangements. So the first is make my joy complete. Make my joy complete. And this is coming from somebody that's in in jail, so how hard is it to complete his joy? (laughs) All right. But uh, he's going to describe how they're going to do it. And it's just going to fill him to the fullness as we uh, study these things. And then the conclusion to that leads right into the second. And and really when it says here, uh, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, that immediately follows up in verse 3 with the uh, the beginnings of the second exhortation. And so in verse 3 he says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And that's the bridge that gets you to the imperative in verse 5. Think this way. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. All right, so uh, three imperatives after the or three exhortations after the exhortations comes the travel arrangements and the travel arrangements are going to focus on timothy and epaphroditus even paul himself is going to express a desire to be there shortly uh, but the main travel arrangements center on timothy starting here in verse 19 through 24 and then epaphroditus uh, starting in verse 25 Uh, Verse 24 is where Paul says, I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. And really that paragraph is written backwards because Epaphroditus is the one that arrives first. He's the one that's holding the scroll that uh, today we call Philippians. And he's the one that carries that message to Philippi uh, with the note that uh, Timothy should be uh, right behind him uh, after a bit and then hopefully Paul right after that. So we'll tackle those travel arrangements. And you can imagine 
you know, 12 verses of travel arrangements here from verse 19 to 30. There's a lot of detail that go into that, particularly when Paul starts to talk about the, uh, the heart of Timothy, the preparation of Timothy, why it is that no other student is prepared like Timothy is prepared to go and minister there in Philippi. If you want just a quick sneak peek on that, you'll notice it in uh, verses 19 through 21 here. He says, but I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. This is his uh, prime uh, qualification in the training ministry, in the, in the seminary program, is his shepherd's heart. Everybody else, notice, they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. And so the exhortations that we're going to be studying this morning about uh, being concerned for the welfare of others, not your own personal self-interest, all of that finds an expression, it finds an application in Timothy. Timothy is ready to, uh, to go forth and serve. Uh, the others are not. And that's, uh, that's something we have to address as well. All right. So starting this morning then with make my joy complete, we have to deal with a bunch of ifs. And before we get to the ifs, we've got the context. Suffering for Christ's sake and experiencing the common conflict with Paul. That's verse 29, that's verse 30 of chapter 1. So this is point 1 in the outline. Suffering for Christ's sake, Philippians 1, 29, and experiencing the common conflict with Paul, Philippians 1, 30 is the basis for three exhortations that start chapter 2. Suffering for Christ's sake in chapter 1 and verse 29, and experiencing the common conflict with Paul, Philippians 1.30. This is now the basis for the three exhortations that start chapter 2. And there's a, there's a therefore in 2.1, there's a so then in uh, 2.12, and I think the... Um, the idioms that are found in, in verses 3, 4, and 5 likewise contain uh, markers that point back to the context of chapter 1. Suffering for Christ's sake and experiencing the common conflict. These are the things. And so when you're going through these testings, when you're going through the, the suffering, when you're going through the conflict, that's when you ask yourself, is there any consolation? Is there any comfort? Is there any love? Is there any fellowship? All right. And you, you can ask yourself the same questions that Paul's ask, asking here in chapter 2 and verse 1. Is there any? And you have to come to the same conclusion because when he's asking this, he's asking this expecting the yes answer. This is a first, all four of these are first class condition ifs. All four of these are expecting the answer yes. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, is there any? Okay. And uh, well obviously there is and there's a whole lot of it. But if there's even a little bit, then make my joy complete is what he says here. So we have a context. With that context established, we're ready for the ifs. And I'm going to give you the ifs under point two. If, 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 if. (laughs) Okay? Four long ifs. And all four are true. All four are assumed to be true for the sake of argument. But you have multiple ifs, and when you have multiple ifs, you've got to go to the end, and you've got to put all four of them together. You can't just stop with the first if and then skip the rest and proceed. All four of these are true. Okay? And this is, uh, this is what happens. This is how it, uh, language works. This is how it works in, in 
Greek, Hebrew, English, I don't care. Just conceptually now, if I am making a statement that is contingent upon four separate things, then just having three of those things true isn't enough. I've got to have all four of them to be true, to proceed beyond uh, the, to the apotesis of the, uh, of the statement. And that's what we have here. If, 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 if. Now all four ifs are first class conditional clauses. They are all assumed to be true. And this is something we've had in the past. This is something we'll have again. I don't mind stopping and taking the time to outline them for you. In fact, it's helpful if we have beginning Greek students that have not yet reached the, uh, the place of conditional clauses so they don't know how to identify these for themselves. And it's good to be able to identify them for yourself. Don't just take a commentary's word for it or a pastor's word for it when he says, hey, this is a first class condition. And you're looking at it yourself in the Greek saying, well, wait a minute. How come it has A in the protesis and on in the apotesis? Shouldn't that be a second class condition? Shouldn't this not be true? And then, uh, and then uh, the pastor looks at you and says, wow, you're right. It is a second class. What, what was I thinking? And, uh, and the issue's there. So this is what we, uh, we're dealing with here. We have these all four are first class conditions. All four are assumed to be true. And so in some respects, there are translators that prefer to use the word since all right, since there is, since there is, you know, since this is true, then, uh, you know, and, and it finishes the sentence, right? Fundamentally, that's what we're talking about. A conditional sentence is an if-then statement is all it is. So if this, then that, all right? Uh, I think the only problem with the since translation is you can't always use it, and that sometimes first-class conditions are not true, but they're assumed to be true for the sake of the argument, all right, and uh, and Jesus will use some that way. Satan will use some. Um, Satan uses first class conditions when he's tempting Christ. All right, and so sometimes, uh, and Jesus even uses a first class condition for something that isn't true. All right, and so you don't want to use since in a, in a circumstance like that. If you want to use something besides if, you can use assuming. All right, use the word assuming, and that'll do the job. So assuming this is true, then you know, and, and take it from there. And we're going to assume that all of four of these are true because that's the way the language is used. All right. So in a first class condition, sub point A, this is what a first class condition is. The if clause is assumed to be true for the argument's sake. And how it's structured, you'll find this in your, in your Greek text when you're looking at it, you're going to have the particle A, that's E-I, all right? E-I is, is the little particle. And in fact, uh, it's important that you have the E-I without the little accent, the little hat circumflex accent over. Uh, that, because that's a, a different thing altogether. But E-I plus the indicative. That's, that's your formula in the protasis. Okay? Every time. When we have a protasis, we have an apotasis, in, just grammatically speaking. There's the if, there's the then. So in the if part of the sentence, you have A plus the indicative. What's the indicative mood? The indicative mood is the mood of reality. It's the mood of, 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 of existence. The things that are happening are in the indicative mood. And so we're going to assume that you have something that's real in the indicative, A plus the indicative in the, in the protasis. Then in the apotasis, in the, in the then statement, you could have any mood. You could have any mood whatsoever. It's not, it, it doesn't matter. You might have indicative, you might have imperative. It could be a command. If this is true, then go do that. Or uh, if this is true, it might be in the indicative, then this other thing also will happen, okay? Could be in the subjunctive, 
Could be an infinitive, could be any number of things. And so when you spot A plus the indicative, and then there's no on, there's no other particle, there's nothing else special in the, in the uh, apodosis, then you know, hey, we're looking at a first-class condition here. This is assumed to be true. And, and the reader would know that. The listener would know that. Okay? This, is, uh, this is so natural to a, to a Greek speaker, to a Greek reader, that uh, no one would miss this, in this nuance. It's like um, um, when your wife says, uh, that's the last football game you're watching today, Right? Okay, you just know that the answer, the expected answer, is yes. <laughs> this is the last football game I'm watching today. Yes, and then while well, meanwhile, you know, the wheels are rolling in the back of your head, and all of a sudden it dawns on you that you had promised to do something uh, that afternoon, and so the answer is yes. First class condition and true. Yes, uh, we are gonna do this. Uh, this afternoon, okay? Just as soon as Army finishes the marvelous conclusion to their football game against San Diego State. <laughs> All right. And so that's what we have here. And several New Testament examples that we are familiar with. Uh, uh, don't mind taking the time to look at some of these, uh, starting in Matthew chapter 4. All right, Matthew chapter 4. And it's good to know these for what they are. It's also to be somewhat cautious for how things can be abused. I think a lot of times conditional sentences get abused. Um, they get preached where, where too much is packed into the, the syntax that the text itself doesn't bear. And that's where uh, you have to be cautious. But in any event, in Matthew 4, this is Jesus and his temptation. So Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. Okay, isn't that amazing? And then the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now this is a first class condition. Satan is admitting what he knows to be true. And so we could say, since you are the Son of God, or assuming you are the Son of God. So it's an if, and it's an if uh, granting the circumstances being true. Because Satan knows it's true. All right? Satan absolutely knows it's true. And uh, it just boggles my mind when I meet these God-hating Bible skeptics and they try to tell me, well, you know, Jesus never claimed to be God. Yeah, he did all over the place, many, many times. And even when the devil told him he was God and the Son of God, he didn't dispute it. Yes, it's true. If you are the Son of God, and I know that you are, then command that these stones become bread. And so that's assumed to be true. Obviously, then Jesus uh, has an answer for him. He's going to answer every temptation with Scripture. It's not really the point that he's hungry, and it's not really the point that he's the Son of God. Uh, what's really the point is that uh, he's not going to do anything that the Father does not tell him to do. That he's not here on his own initiative. He's not here to glorify himself. He's not here to please himself. When the Father sees fit to feed him, then he'll eat. Until then, he's going he's gonna to stay obedient to the Father. So he answers and says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. <laughs> Isn't that great? So physical food is not my first priority. How about that? And he has scripture to answer the temptation. Then the next temptation 
the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, first class condition, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And then he'll skip a little part and then he'll continue. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you not strike your foot against a stone. Okay? And he's quoting scripture here, scripture that comes from, uh, where's it come from? Psalm, Psalm 91. Okay? And he strategically leaves out a little part there where the psalmist talks about trampling on snakes. Okay? And uh, I, I laugh every time. To me, that's amusing that the serpent would leave that bit out when he's, uh, when he's twisting scripture here. And in this case, you know, clearly, uh, when God promises to protect His children, is that license to just live in a foolish way and do stupid things and, and, and that God's going to bail you out of your own stupidity because He promised to take care of you? No, not at all. And uh, so Jesus says, on the other hand, <laughs> not denying, yeah, okay, the Bible says that, but the Bible also says this, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And so Jesus has a marvelous hermeneutic. That's why we use his hermeneutic. That's why we accept the truth of every passage of Scripture. But we also say, hey, how about the truth of this passage of Scripture? And we want to compare Scripture to Scripture and say, because they're both true. And we have to reconcile both of them. Yes, God's going to protect me. But he also said, don't tempt him. And, uh, you know, I can probably find a verse that says, you know, don't be stupid. Okay? <laughs> you know, walk in wisdom. Don't be a fool. And... Uh, but as it is, Jesus evidently had Deuteronomy on the mind because every one of these references that he's quoting all comes from Deuteronomy in dealing with uh, these temptations. So both of those examples from verse 3 to verse 6 are both um, if you are the Son of God, first class condition assumed to be true. Okay, And, uh, and there's more. I mean, there's hundreds of these. I only gave you like two, four, five, six. Seven, eight, nine. So I gave you nine uh, plus the aper use. So I gave you ten to look at here out of hundreds of first class conditions that we have. Uh, the one that's not true Jesus uses when he's um, dealing with his critics unless it's Matthew 12. Let me look at Matthew 12 here real quick. Verses 27 and 28. Ah, it is. Okay. Good. I'm glad I put this in here. Ha! Outsmarted myself. Matthew 12, verses 27 and 28. And so here Jesus is going to use an if. And he's going to say for the sake of argument, let's just say this is true. That was not true. And, uh, and yet this is the way language works. We can assume something is true for the moment. Just, to, just saying, all right? Well, if you're right, well then where does that take us? Okay, uh, Assuming this is true. You can do this with big bangers or evolution or whatever, global warming panicky people, whatever, just say, okay, fine, let's assume it is true. How is this going to solve anything? Okay. And so in Matthew chapter 12, um, he heals this guy. There's a blind uh, demoniac here, blind and mute, and um, Jesus uh, heals him. So the, the mute man spoke and saw. And so the crowds are amazed. This man cannot be the son of David, can he? And when the Pharisees heard this, they said, well, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. He's not, he's not really from God. He's not using God's power. He's, he's, uh, he's using Beelzebul's power to, to do all this. 
Well, knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, all right, he is, di- he is divided against himself, how then will his kingdom stand? And then if I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, now he's not doing that. Jesus is not doing that. Jesus is doing everything by the power of the Holy Spirit and the will of God the Father. But assuming for the sake of argument that Jesus says, this is what I'm doing, then by whom do your sons cast them out? <laughs> okay? You know, you got some exorcists in, in your camp. There's some Pharisee exorcists out there and Sadducee exorcists and different things. Uh, well, probably not Sadducees, but Pharisees definitely. Um, then who do your sons cast them? By whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. Goes on to say, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, and let's assume that also is true now for this argument, then uh, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Okay? And so this is just a way, a very powerful way to, to get a point across. In fact, you can use these kind of ifs in, in, in gripping ways. And, you, and, and the, the way you do that is you present it in such a way that it leaves it in the hearer's own uh, capacity to, to process and to, and to decide. All right, well, what do I do with that? Okay? And, uh, and just leave it there and let them deal with the issue. It becomes, it becomes a, a marvelous way to communicate. Uh, that it has a, a lot more, has a just a different richness to it than than you would have if you're just talking in an indicative mood or ordering somebody with an imperative or telling somebody to do something. Okay, and it's like uh, you know um, talking about the destruction of the new heaven or the the heavens and the earth by fire, and the soon coming of the the new heavens and the new earth, and and saying you know since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be? Okay. And, and it's just kind of laying it out there saying, all right, this being the case, what are you going to do? And leave it with the hearer, leave it with the reader, leave it with the, the believer then in their volition to apply the Word of God, see, or not, <laughs> you know. But they got more to think about now. See, on the basis of this, what next? Okay, and that's... Uh, that's neat the way that happens, all right? Uh, some more examples that we've had not long ago in Galatians, Galatians 2.18. Remember we taught Galatians before we taught Philippians? I know it seems like it was 100 years ago. It wasn't. We've only done one chapter of Philippians, so Galatians was not that long ago. But do you remember Galatians 2.18 and Galatians 5.18? All right. Oh, yeah, I know you've slept since then. All right. So context for this, because there's some third class in here also, but um, earlier. Galatians chapter 2, this is when he's having a, a, a confrontation with Peter, okay? Peter shows up, and you know, you're, you're having ministry, and then a pastor comes in from out of town, and you know, you want to be gracious and welcoming, but he's causing trouble, okay? And in this case, he's, he's leading even Barnabas to getting caught up in the hypocrisy, and so Paul has to confront him and say, hey, cut it out. And um, so uh, verse 15, he says, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, 
But through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, since by works of the law no flesh will be justified. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. All right. That's a third class looking, it's, it's, uh, I think it's third, I'd have to double check. But then in verse 18, for if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. And so he's going to assume that to be true. That's an example there. All right, maybe in chapter 5 we'll have a better one. Chapter 5 and verse 18. Got to claim this as a promise. Claim 16 as a promise. I say, walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. You can't go carnal when you're walking by the Spirit. It is impossible for you to sin walking by the Spirit. Likewise, verse 18, but if, first class condition, assume this to be true, if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Okay, It's a first class. Assuming this to be the case, here you go. And those are the ones there. Uh, Not only verse 1 of Philippians 2, but we'll have another one in verse 17. Same chapter down in verse 17. So we have the four that are in verse 1. They're all true. If there is any encouragement in Christ, and you bet, there's a lot. Not just any, there's a lot. If there is any consolation of love, yes, there's a lot. If there is any fellowship of the Spirit, are you kidding me? There is a lot of fellowship in the Spirit. If there is any affection and compassion, oh, absolutely. It's all over the place. Make my joy complete. Then in verse 17, Paul uses the same formula. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, first class condition, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And that one's kind of an even if because Paul's still not certain that he's going to die. He believes he's going to be released. But even if, okay, assume that to be true. I'm going to rejoice and share my joy with you all. My last example is the one you've heard at every baptism service. I like to use Colossians 3.1 when I'm doing a baptism service. Colossians 3.1 says, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ. Okay, and guess what? When you're saved, that's true. <laughs> that moment you become a believer. When you trust in Christ for eternal life, then there's a whole list of things that happen to you. You have a portfolio of assets that happen to you. Salvation, grace, blessings that happen to you by virtue of being baptized in the union with Christ, including being raised up, being seated with Him in the heavenly places. And so it's true. And, and it's, it's assumed to be true. We, we recognize biblically that positionally it is true. If you have been raised up with Christ... Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. All of that's true. Isn't that marvelous? <laughs> okay, Our bodies are sitting in a, in a building on Cross Park Drive in Austin, Texas. But that's not where positionally, that's not where we are. Positionally, spiritually, where are we? We're at the right hand of the throne of God on high. 
Because Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the throne of God on high. We're in Christ. This is a powerful truth. All right? And by the way, stay tuned because I'm excited. Bill Kelly's working on this, this, this stuff for January 7th. He's got the first Sunday night on the, uh, the rotation that we're starting in January to teach union with Christ. What does it mean to be united with Christ? What does it mean to be in Christ? And uh, so many things. So stay tuned for that. Now there's an even stronger, how do you get stronger than something being true? Something being very true. Something being true indeed, okay? If indeed, such as Romans 8 9. And this is a particle, it's not A plus the indicative, this is a, a uh, compound particle, it's aper, E-I-P-E-R, and we've got an example of this in Romans 8 9. So let's look at that. Romans 8 9. And so um, we've got verses 1 through 8 that kind of lead up to this. Remember, uh, how are you thinking? How are you thinking? And God holds us accountable for how we think. If we're thinking the wrong way, that's on us because He told us how to think. And He gives us the Word of God to shape our thinking. And uh, in verse 6 we're told uh, the, the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. The mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. And how pathetic is it when a born-again believer who should know better doesn't have their mind set on what they're told to have their mind set on? Because God commands us and leaves it for us to obey what He tells us to do. And it goes on to say, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. (laughs) He's given you everything to please Him and you're choosing not to walk in the Spirit. You're choosing to walk in the flesh. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed, and this is true, very true, if indeed, Aper, the Spirit of God dwells in you, obviously. Are you saved? Then the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Quit quenching Him, quit grieving Him, quit resisting Him. Walk by the Spirit. You won't fulfill these lusts of the flesh. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. This is an absolute issue. This this centers on every born-again believer in the church age. If you are truly saved, if you have eternal life, if you belong to Christ, then you've got that Holy Spirit. It's not a second blessing. Pentecostals try to turn it into a second blessing, right? Something that you get later if you're good enough and try hard enough. No. When you're in Christ... If you belong to Christ, this is your birthright. This is what is granted. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. So we want to be clear on that. All right? Now, that's the first class condition. How many more do we have? Yeah, at least two, probably three. Not in the New Testament, but kind of. Uh, the fourth class is, uh, is not, truly not even found in the New Testament, but there are functional equivalents of the fourth class that are in the New Testament. So we'll We'll go ahead and, and, and teach those as well. All right, a second class condition. A second class condition is not true. It is not true, all right? Either factually not true or assumed to not be true for the sake of the argument, for the sake of the discussion in the logic of what's presented. These are what are called counterfactuals, okay? If you ever study those in, in uh, philosophy or, or logic. Counterfactuals. 
uh, the if clause is assumed not true for the argument's sake. And so you have an if in the protasis, and then you have a, a would have, right? Would have, should have, and could have. <laughs> You've got, well, if that would have happened, then I would have done this. All right? You got a would have in, uh, in the apotasis, in the, in, the, in the then statement. So the if clause is assumed as not true for argument's sake. You have A in the, uh, it's the same A particle. Remember for a first class, you have the A particle plus the indicative. Here we have an A particle plus a past tense indicative. We're always talking about a circumstance that could have happened but didn't. Something that might have been but wasn't. You know, we all have them. (laughs) Every one of us has a a, a what-if scenario or, man, if I hadn't have done that. And typically there's regrets from our carnality or our life as an unbeliever or whatever the case might be. Or, you know, if I had not become a pastor, where would I be now? You ever think about depressing stuff like that? You know, um, these are the these are the counterfactuals. They're not true, and in some cases, obviously, we can imagine and daydream and pretend and and wonder, but we can't know with an absolute certainty. We're not omniscient, but God does. God knows every counterfactual with a precision that spans thousands of years biblically. I mean, it spans infinity, because He's known all these counterfactuals since before the foundation of the world. And this, uh, this is huge, okay? This is probably the least underdeveloped, the least understood, the least grasped concept because failure to understand this, I think, damages people's understanding of uh, foreknowledge and uh, predestination and sovereignty and, and a lot of things that, that debates center on, theology debates. All right, so we have A plus a past tense indicative. Past tense being what, Lewis? <laughs> imperfect or aorist, all right? Any past tense imperative, or I guess even a perfect tense. Uh, any past tense imperative, uh, indicative, all right? Something in the past. Aorist, imperfect, perfect tense. And then in the apodosis, you've got another particle. The particle is on, A-N, all right? A-N, or alpha nu. Um, so you've got A plus the past tense indicative, and then in the apodosis, you've got on, plus the past tense indicative. Anyway, we've got uh, several New Testament examples, and these are very useful. These, uh, and we've got some, even uh, some Old Testament examples. If you want to go to the Septuagint and see some expressions there, um, there's, there's even more. But um, let's look at some of these, starting with Matthew eleven twenty one. But you get it, this, none of these are true. But if they would have been true, then I would have done this. Follow? All right. And, and we do this all the time. We do this every time you drive a car. You pull up at an intersection, you're looking, you're looking, and you're thinking, okay, well, if I pull out now, that truck's going to cream me. <laughs> right? So I don't pull out now. I'm just looking at that thinking, okay, if I do that, no, I'm not going to do that. It's, it's a common experience. And we can, we can gauge things you know, within a few seconds. If, if I'm not going to do it because if I do, then that's, that's bad. Right? God, of course, does it for thousands of years, an infinite amount of time. He knows every outcome of everything that doesn't happen. But if it would have happened, here's a consequence 2,000 years later. That's powerful. All right, so in Matthew eleven twenty one, got a marvelous uh, insight into the omniscience of God. Matthew eleven twenty one. 
context backing up here. Um, in verse 20, he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. And he says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if, and it's not true, this is a second-class condition if, if the miracles had occurred in Tyre, that had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, sorry, let me start over. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So did you see? Did you follow that? So it didn't happen. But if it, did, if it would have happened, this is what they would have done. Because he did all these miracles in, in, in these places, in Chorazin and Bethsaida. And whatever miracles he did in Chorazin and Bethsaida, had those same miracles been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. All right? And so, and this is, this is, this is an absolute statement coming from, from, from the perspective of Jesus speaking as a spirit-indwelled prophet, but it's also inspired in the canon of Scripture, given from the Holy Spirit with an absolute certainty. Okay? I don't know for an absolute certainty that I would have become a homicide investigator. I know that was my plan. I know I wanted to get into law enforcement. I knew that I was in law enforcement in the Army. I knew that when I got out of the Army I was going to go to, to Seattle Police Department. Uh, my, my plan was to be a, a homicide investigator by the time I turned 30. In fact, I had such a, a thing for Colombo. I was, I was working on my, my play dumb routine. I mean, I was getting real good at acting like I was clueless and then springing that question on them that proved they were the murderer, you know. <laughs> that was my plan. And then who knows? You know, God knows. God knows. I can't know for certainty that that's what would have happened. All right? But God knows. He knows with a certainty that Tyre and Sidon would have repented. Same thing with, with Sodom and Gomorrah. So he says, nevertheless, further down here in, in Matthew 11, um, nevertheless I say to you, be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, you will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. What year was Sodom destroyed? Right? I mean, you're going back to Abraham's time for that story, and that's, that's 2000 B.C. and earlier. Maybe 2300 B.C. if you like the Septuagint dates like I do. Okay? Um, 2300 B.C for the destruction of Sodom. And here's Jesus speaking in 33 AD, 32 AD. And, um, and not only would they have survived then, they would still be here to this day. What kind of revival would Sodom have had? Can you imagine? Such a revival that they became such an epicenter of doctrine, such a, 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 a powerhouse of positive volition that they remain 2,000 years later? That's, that's impressive. Nevertheless, I say to you that it would be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. And that's why these, all of these uh, passages really help us. The one in the Old Testament is with, with David and Keilah, and he's hiding in Keilah, and then Saul finds out he's in Keilah, and Saul's going to go attack. And, and so David inquires the Lord and says, you know, will the men of Keilah give me up? 
And the Lord says, yes. If you're still here when Saul gets here, they're going to give you up. Okay? And so David skips out. He's gone. And because David's gone, Saul never shows up and it never comes to that. But had it come to that, that's what would have happened. And God spoke with absolute certainty. That's going to happen if this happens, if this happens, that this is what's going to happen. Absolute certainty. Okay? And yet, it never happened. Right? And so, keep those in mind. I'm telling you, keep those in mind because there are some flawed understandings of omniscience that, that reject what I just taught. Reject what the Bible just taught. Okay? They limit omniscience. God only knows the future in, in these bad views. God only knows the future because He has sovereignly decreed the future. He only knows what's going to happen because He knows what He decreed to happen. And on that view, God can't know any counterfactuals. God can't know any potentials. God can't know the future of things that don't happen because he doesn't decree them, right? If he only knows what he decrees, then there's stuff he doesn't know. He doesn't know the could'ves, would'ves, and should'ves, the maybes, and the what-ifs of things he doesn't decree, okay? Now, you can defend that view, and there's a lot to try, but when you defend that view, you have no answer for these counterfactuals we're looking at here today, that God knows the what-ifs, and he knows the what-ifs that are not true, So I like to talk to people, when I talk about omniscience, God knows everything, and everything is more than you think it is. (laughs) Okay? Because everything is is everything. That's everything, every reality, but also every unreality, every potentiality, every every reality that might be. Okay? And this is is easy. Just go watch Scrooge, right? (laughs) Go watch A Christmas Carol. Go watch, I mean, Dickens got this. Ghost of Christmas past, ghost of Christmas present, ghost of Christmas future and whatever. Here's what is going to happen, okay? It's terrible theology, but at least they got the time thing right. (laughs) Don't repent and become a better person and earn and deserve something. But anyway, you can't change your ways and avoid hell. You got to believe in Jesus Christ to be saved. But the time things, past, present, future, a future that might be if you choose this, a future that might not be if you don't choose this, all of that is very biblical, related to God's sovereign control of the Alpha and Omega program. The Alpha and Omega program, the, the time stream that we're in, is the one God wants. This is, our, this is our reality, the one that God wants. But all those other parallel universes and parallel timelines and, and what might be when kind of things, God knows all those too. He knows every single one of them. And that's exciting. All right, Matthew 23, 30. Some other examples of these. 23:30. Good exposure for humans that think they can say stuff like this, and we can't. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous, and you say. If we had been living in the days of our fathers, well, that's dumb. You're not living in the days of your father. You're living now, okay? And if you'd have been around back then, wrong, okay? Well, if we had been, we would not have been partners with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. And Jesus said, oh yeah, you would have been. You'd have been front front of the line. You'd have been the first one casting stones because you're bigger uh, murderers than they ever were. You have more evil than they ever dreamed of. 
well, I would have never done that. You know, had I been there? Oh, please. Okay? Like if it would have been, instead of Adam and Eve, if it would have been Bob and Eve or whatever, right? If, I, if, if it would have been me in the Garden of Eden, I wouldn't. You know, Eve would have handed me that, that apple and I'd have said, oh, no, no, no. Are you kidding? All right. <laughs> Jesus calls him out on it. And he says, you testify against yourselves. You're sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. And this is almost, this is kind of the functional equivalent of make my joy complete. These guys are going to make their sin complete. These guys are going to reap everything and wrath and judgment and everything is coming crashing down on them. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Yeah, those guys murdered prophets, you're going to crucify the Christ. <laughs> okay? So don't, don't be prideful and think that uh, you would never do that. In fact, this generation is going to be judicially sentenced for all the righteous blood shed on earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Barakai. All these things will come upon this generation. This generation is going to make his wrath complete. <laughs> right? Like Paul says, make my joy complete. So uh, they're going to fill up then the measure of the guilt of their fathers. All right, 2442. So that's a good example. Of 20, that's a good example of humans that try to do it, and we're usually um, wrong. Matthew 24, 42. Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know if of which day your Lord is coming. And that's that one's slightly a different expression. It, technically it is a second class condition, but it's different than... Uh, well, verse 43, how about that? If, be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. That's the one. There it is, verse 43. Okay? So fix that. Yeah, obviously. You know, burglars don't send you announcements, you know, graduation announcements or whatever. They'll give you little notices. I'm going to break into your house this night. Okay. But if you would have known then you'd have done something, okay? And that's, I mean, typical. Uh, Luke 7.39. Hmm. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, remember this sinful woman? And she's uh, wiping his feet. There was a woman in the city who was a sinner, and when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. Now remember, who's a sinner? Everybody. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. We're all sinners. So why are some people called sinners? <laughs> okay? And we have sinners and tax collectors. There are common terms in the New Testament. Jesus uses these. All right? And generally speaking, that these expressions are being used of uh, non-observant Jewish people, okay? They are ceremonially unclean. They will always be ceremonially unclean. They will never be eligible, and they don't even try 
to take part in, in Passover and Pentecost, any of the feasts, all right? They're never going to be, maybe they're, you know, uh, if they're a tanner or a dyer and they've got to touch the carcasses of stuff as they're mixing their, 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 their uh, dyes, or uh, they're, they're a prostitute, uh, they, uh, they have other career paths, or, you know, there, there are things touching a dead body, other things that are going to leave you ceremonially unclean. And if that's your occupation, if that's your pursuit, if you don't even try, well, then there you go. And that's uh, the case here. Um, anyway, when she learned that he was reclining at the table at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. Standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to weep, wet the, his feet with her tears, and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet, anointing them with perfume. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, okay, and he's skeptical. He's using a second-class condition. He's assuming it not to be true. He's actually wrong. Jesus is a prophet, <laughs> okay? So this is a second-class condition that is actually true, but it's assumed to be false for the statement that's being made, for the sake of the argument of, of what this man's thinking about. If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. So if he was a prophet, he would know that. And since he clearly doesn't know that because he's letting her touch him, okay, since he's letting her touch him, he obviously doesn't know what kind of woman she is, so obviously he can't be a prophet, right? Ergo, logic. Okay? And all these assumptions that these prideful Pharisees are making are... uh, are just wrong to begin with. When you have a when you start with a bad premise, all your logic is out the window. Throw it all, throw it all out. When it comes to that, anyway, it's uh, it's a good example of a second class condition there. How about um, John five forty six? You know, he says in verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. Now, what's wrong with that statement? Can't they find eternal life in the scriptures? Well, yes, however, um, truth has to be united with faith or it doesn't profit you. And uh, you're unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. So there's a, there's a problem. And uh, he says, I know you. In verse 42, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. And uh, in verse 44, how can you believe? Um, Anyway, he comes down here in verse 46. He says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. And that's the second class condition. They don't. They don't believe Moses. And uh, so they're not believing in Christ for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And that's, uh, I think that's third class. Did I list it? I did not list it. But it is a third class. All right, we'll get to that next. Um, John fifteen nineteen. This is probably overkill. You, you, you figured this out 20 minutes ago, right? And second class are not true. First class are true. All right. So what's third class? Maybe yes, maybe no. Okay? Don't know. Who knows? Maybe. 
Maybe this, maybe no. If this, then that, but hey, who knows? Okay? If we confess our sins, <laughs> maybe I will, maybe I won't. But if I do confess my sins, He's faithful and just to forgive me my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. See, so first class is true, second class is not true, third class might be, might be not. Probably could be, and if it is, then this is what the consequence is going to be. All right, uh, so 15, 19, Luke 15, 19, I'm sorry, John 15, 19. If you were of the world, remember this, uh, verse 18 says, if the world hates you, and guess what? You know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, guess what? You're not. Okay? You're not. But if you were, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Okay? So there you have it. Welcome to the body of Christ. (laughs) All right? Oh, happy day, happy day. Wash my sins away. Yes, you are saved, happy about that, but what comes with that? The world now hates you. Conflict is coming. Flaming missiles are flying in. So get that armor on. Get that shield of faith ready. This is what happens. 1 Corinthians 2.8. Paul uses this a lot. 1 Corinthians 2.8. It is not true, but if it was true... See, the rulers of this age did not understand the wisdom of God. And uh, he talks about, you know, the wisdom of the world is foolishness before God. God's wisdom is foolishness to this world. You know, angels are smart, but they don't know God's wisdom. The fallen angels especially are twisted in, uh, in these things. So verse 7 says, uh, let's see, verse 6 says... We speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. In fact, ultimately, they will be abolished as a part of the fullness of time. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom, which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, and they didn't, second class condition, But if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. See, putting Jesus on the cross was a mistake. And Satan didn't realize it till too late. Okay? Had they understood it, they wouldn't have done it. Okay? And God would, of course, have done it anyway. But but the the fallen angels didn't know any better. The fallen angels thought they were going to have a victory. (laughs) Right? Like every time, Satan uh, thinks he's got this great victory. He motivates Herod to go murder all those Bethlehem babies. (laughs) Yeah, great plan there, Satan. How'd that work out? Okay. Every time he thinks he has the winning blow, it's not happening. Okay. And he doesn't know until it's too late. Oh, that didn't work. Oh, that didn't work. Okay. 30 years later, here comes Jesus to be baptized. The Holy Spirit descends as a dove. The voice comes from heaven, says, Behold, my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And then and only then does Satan realize. Oh, I didn't get him when I killed all those Bethlehem baby boys. (laughs) Okay. See, there's my Christmas message this morning. I knew we'd fit one in somehow. If they would have understood the wisdom of God, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That's a second class condition. 
Uh, we've seen two in Galatians. There's some coming up in Hebrews. 1 John 2.19 is another example, but we're out of time. So first class is true. Got that? Second class is not true. Got plenty of Bible examples for you. You can find more if you like. Just thumb through your New Testament and find the, the A's and the ons. And then the third class condition. Third class condition has an aeon. It combines the A and the on together into an aeon, an E-A-N particle. And it uses the subjunctive mood. It's the mood of potential. It's the mood of maybe. Might. Should. Would. Maybe. Okay? And that's the uncertainness of fulfillment, but still likely, particularly when you do what you're told to do. If you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if you don't confess, okay, it doesn't mean He's not faithful. (laughs) He's still faithful and just, but you didn't confess. So we'll deal with that. And then there is a fourth class uh, which is not likely at all. It's remote. You wish it was true, but alas, you know better. (laughs) All right, so we'll deal with that. Lord willing and rapture pending. So in Philippians 2.1, what are they? All four of them are true. There is consolation. There is comfort. There is encouragement. There is all of these good things. They're all there for us. Thank you, Father, for this morning. Thank you for your truth. I do thank you for your son. And I rejoice, Father, that he came in his humility, that he was obedient in all things, tested in all things, tempted in all things, even as we are, and yet without sin, that without spot, without blemish, the perfect lamb became our substitute. He went to the cross and he accepted your wrath on our behalf. And Father, I thank you for that. And I pray that this day, Father, uh, Christmas Sunday, man, we get a lot of visitors on Christmas Sunday. And a lot of folks that go to church on Christmas and Easter and not really many other times throughout the year. But Father, we get some visitors and I pray on this day that a gospel message would go forth in such a way that uh, darkness will be pierced, that conviction will take place, that your drawing, your calling will be effective and powerful, Father, that you will bring each unbeliever to the point where they can see it for what it is, they can trust it or reject it. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name we pray, amen.